So, before we start, uh, <clears throat> might be paid to just remind ourselves of why Paul felt the need to write this letter uh, to the people of Colossus. Uh, Paul had never met these people, but he had heard that they were converted to faith by Epaphus, who had himself been converted by Paul a few years earlier. This young church had now become subject to heretical attack, which led to Ephesus' visit to Paul in Rome, and ultimately to the penning of this letter. And I, I personally get the impression that the people were basically trying to be good Christians, but without proper guidance, they were steadily reverting to previous habits and the ways of the Pharisees, uh, which were so heavily criticised by Christ. Uh, these were, and we've seen these in the previous sermons, ceremonialism, uh, permissible food and drink, circumcision, religious festivals, asceticism, which is, I have to say, is a new word for me, but meaning severe self-discipline or unnecessary suffering. Don't touch this, don't taste that, don't go near this. Or angel worship and seeking out visions. Devaluing Christ, as Paul throughout this has given supremacy to Christ. Reliance on human wisdom, as in his warnings to watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual talk. False teachers and fake news. These things that have all been discussed in the previous sermons that to do with Colossians. And Paul has brought up these theological issues while finding room to give encouragement. Now he comes, I think, to the point of the letter, which is putting that theological theology into practice. Um, and that's a little bit more difficult. And he starts off by saying, if you're serious about living the new resurrection with Christ, act like it. And imagine, if you're serious, act like it. I'm kind of thinking, that's serious, isn't it? That really stops you in your tracks. I know when words of this nature have been said to me in the past, I've either bristled like, like that, or I've gone bright red with embarrassment as I've realised that actually I've been doing something terribly wrong. And I kind of wonder how you would respond. So what he's really saying is stop playing at being a Christian and become one. And it reminds me of sort of my first significant promotion in the Air Force, I suppose. I'd left apprenticeship, and for the first two years, uh, I'd been mentored by people uh, how to go about the, you know, the practice of mending aircraft. And then I got promoted, and suddenly I was in charge of these people who'd been looking after me. And that's quite a difficult place to be in. And uh, I wasn't doing it very well. And my boss took me to the side one day and he said, look, I trust that you're worthy to do this, John, but you now have to demonstrate that worthiness. And this is what Paul is saying, I think, to, the, to these people in Colossus. is, you are seated with God, you are with God, but now you have to live it, you have to do it. And the next question is, oh, very well, but how? And his next statement is, pursue the things over which Christ presides. 
And this suggests activity, doesn't it? If you pursue, you pursue an interest, you pursue an aim, you have to make effort, perhaps over a long period, in order to accomplish that aim. Or if you try to find out more about it by asking questions, you become inquisitive. I've lost myself. And Paul is saying that we, or the Colossians, if you like, should be inquisitive about Christ. We should try to find out about how he is. Next bit, he says, don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed in things right in front of you. But it's too easy in these days, these hectic days, to limit our attention. We do limit our attention to immediate things our immediate surroundings, immediate situation, situations that are right there in front of you so that you see nothing else. We become self-absorbed and our world becomes very small. And I've read that when people who are depressed, for instance, they won't walk around, but they tend to walk around looking at the ground and In doing that, the world shrinks, and it shrinks so small that all that exists is their problem. And um, in this context, looking at the ground will also mean being focused on earthly things rather than heavenly things. And if we shouldn't look down, the obvious thing is then perhaps we should look up, and this is what Paul's saying in the next statement, Look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Hmm. Seeing things from his perspective. We're not too good at that, are we? Considering other perspectives. We kind of like our own perspective. But how else are we going to know or learn about Christ if we don't attempt to understand his viewpoint, his perspective. And we hear quite a lot of times people advising that we should always ask, what would Jesus do in this situation? Well, if you don't know Jesus, and you don't understand Jesus, then how can you hope to know what he would do in that situation? You can't. And we can all be a little bit judgmental from time to time, can't we? But if we try to explore someone else's perspective, we might find that we actually have a desire to help that person rather than persecute them in just understanding perspectives. Paul then goes on to say, your old life is dead. And This is a part of the problem for the Colossians and for us, isn't it? They have been reverting to old Jewish ways. Uh, Some might call that backsliding. When I made moves to become a Christian, was it a transformational uh, moment like Paul's road to Damascus? No. Did I immediately kill off my old life? No, I didn't. For me, it was a gradual 
just changes. And I imagine that even for some of you who have been Christians all of your life, you started out with a childhood view of Christianity, and over the years that view has matured and changed. And so the old life gradually died, I think, for most of us. But I don't know if you... Uh, yeah, so for, for the Colossians, without the good guidance and, without the presence of and with the presence of false teachers, they were bound, I think, to revert to their old habits. And I don't know if any of you studied management of change, but uh, one technique that management used to prevent workers going back to the old comfortable routines is to actually take away, physically remove the means by which they would do that. Uh, and a little while ago, I don't know if you get the U UCB magazine, we do, and there was a little article in there about um, the woman with the alabaster jar. I'll just read the first bit. It says, break your alabaster jar. The Bible says... A woman who had lived a sinful life brought an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, poured perfume on them. So that's coming from Luke 7.37. This perfume was pure nard, a perennial herb that is harvested in the Himalayas. The jar itself was a translucent gemstone and probably, possibly a family heirloom and it might have even been a dowry. But, plain and simple, it was her most precious possession. And how ironic, yet appropriate, that that perfume used in her profession would become the token of a profession of faith when she poured it out over the feet of Jesus. Every lost, last drop used up. And by breaking the bottle and using all of that, she had destroyed the means by which she could revert to her previous profession because she had taken it all away, burning the bridges, we might say. No more masking the sense of sin and sweet perfume and so on. So sometimes we can choose, like that lady did, to say, this is gone and I'm going to prevent it from happening by destroying the means by which I could do that. Paul then goes on, your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible, invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, shows up on this earth, you show up too. The real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity like Christ. Paul is reminding us and then, where their focus should be. And of course, he's, yes, he's talking to us too. You should keep focused on your life with Jesus, even we go, when we go about our daily business. Let our life with Jesus influence how we behave. And he's also addressing our egos, I think. Be content with obscurity. There's no need for us to shine in this life. Follow Christ and you will be glorious. And that means killing off everything connected with that way of death. 
sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like when you feel like it, grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings of, uh, instead of God. And I go, how long ago was this written? It feels to me as if its pertinence is growing rather than diminishing, doesn't it? Doing whatever attracts your fancy, whatever floats your boat, acting on impulse. We've all done it and we all do it. We get addicted to these ways and it's hard to let go. If I go back to the UCB some time ago now, they did a little series on the secrets of self-control. The first or the second sentence of that whole series was, here is the first step. Accept responsibility for your lack of self-control. And that's where Paul is coming in right from beginning here, saying, this is up to you. And, but we like to blame the devil. Yet in James 1.4, he says, a person is tempted when he's drawn away and trapped by his own evil desires. Making it clear that it's us and it's our choice. Paul then goes on. It's because of this kind of thing that God is about to explode in anger. And it wasn't long ago that you were doing all that stuff, not knowing any better. And here there's an element of, you used to behave wrongly. God has forgiven you your past. He accepted that you didn't know any better. And I don't know about you, but I'm beginning to get a sense of Paul's frustration here and almost like the hidden, unasked question is like, and what other excuses have you got? Uh, but Paul manages to keep his cool and he says, but you know better, so make sure it's all gone for good. The bad temper, irritability, meanness, profanity and dirty talk. Don't lie with another. You're done with that old life. It's like a set of filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you stripped off and put on the fire. And now he's starting to sound a little bit like an old broken record, isn't he? He's going on and on the same thing. But sometimes we need to hear these messages again and again, and then one day, when we happen to be ready for that message, we go, oh yeah. And it's, it takes a long time sometimes. Um, but Paul continues, and he's repeating about the old life, and it, but he's introduced now the idea of contamination, but more importantly, I think, the concept, concept of ill-fitting. If you aspire to be a Christian, the old ways just don't fit right. And so when you take that step to be a Christian, those old ways that you had don't sit on you very well, like... Uh, different set of clothes don't fit. And he says then also the idea of burning the clothes. That's his way of saying stop this backsliding. It's making it impossible for you to go back. 
He also drew duties the, the next theme, if you like, in this passage. The first theme was about the death of old ways. And the second is to describe the new ways, because you couldn't very well say, don't do this, don't do that, and you go, well, what can I do then? It's not fair, is it? So then he comes to describe the new ways. New way, words like Jewish, non-Jewish, religious, irreligious, insider, outside, uncivilized, and uncouth, slave and free, they mean nothing from now on. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ, everyone is included in Christ. And this is a major shift. Prior to this, you know, you were a Jew, in which case you were in, or you were a non-Jew, in which case you were out, you were excluded. And I imagine at this time a lot of people were very uncomfortable with this. I imagine that the Jews were shocked in a way that they were no longer special. And I imagine that the non-Jews, although maybe delighted, were still a little bit apprehensive about how this was all going to work. And, you know, how do you feel in a new set of clothes? Are they comfortable? Odd item, perhaps, I can get away with, but a whole new set. No, I know that I'm not, wouldn't be very comfortable. And I'm wondering if any of you ever did any military service? Any? No? I remember when I, when I was 16 and I first joined the Air Force in this new uniform. Uh, it was still in the days of what we call the Hairy Mary it was sort of an itchy wool serge trousers that come up to here somewhere with, with braces that I'd never used before. And we didn't really, we had them too tight, so they were like a weight on your shoulders and pulling up in your crotch. And then this jacket, which was very short and had to be buttoned up to the trousers so that if you moved about, you didn't show this unsightly bit of shirt or anything. And so it was all really very uncomfortable. And then... We had granddad shirts, you know, with uh, detachable collars and these press studs and things. Oh, and this big mark here on your throat. It was awful. But I got used to it. And it's the same with applying, wearing Christian habits. It takes a bit of getting used to, but you do get used to them. Paul then goes on to say, so, chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe that God picked out for you. Notice, I think, new life of love. That's the bit here. This is your new wardrobe. And Paul then goes on to describe what he, I think, what he's saying love is, really. Compassion, kindness, humility, a quiet strength and discipline, even tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive, forgive as quickly and completely as the Master forgives us. And we live in a competitive world, don't we? Where to be successful, you're expected to win. And that reminds me of, you know, when my grandkids were uh, five and three, I think they were at the time, and they had a race. And the older one got, to there, got obviously got there first. Yeah, I'm the winner! 
And then a few seconds later, the younger one came and went, yes, and I'm the winner too. And I kind of smiled. But that's how it is with Jesus. Isn't it? We're all winners. And the prize is the same. Your prize is no better than your prize. Laurie's prize is no better than my prize. There is no need for us to outshine one another. And then he says, regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic all-purpose garment and never be without it. So, in this message so far with the Colossians, Paul has talked about putting Jesus first and this latter bit, he's talked about love your neighbour. And it makes me think of the time when Jesus was challenged by one of the Pharisees about which is the greatest commandment. And Jesus responded, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. And if you can, if you can keep these commandments in your heart, then you really, really will be loving, living the new life of love.